Today, in a very special uh, opportunity, we are going to be talking with Madeleine Albright, who has, as I reckon it, about five more days, as, or is it four more days, as Secretary of State? More like four, and uh, uh, I've had a wonderful run. I uh, enjoyed being U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and the first woman Secretary of State, and uh, I feel pretty good about what we've been able to accomplish. We've had occasion on this program to talk with Cyrus Vance, with George Schultz, with Henry Kissinger, and in fact, Warren Christopher is scheduled to come by in about a month. Um, a question I always put to secretaries of state uh, or former secretaries of state is what did the uh, situation that confronted you look like when you took office and what were the challenges, what were the opportunities, and how well have you done on those challenges and opportunities? I don't mean just you, but I mean the government and our foreign policy establishment as headed by you. Well, I think the challenges really were that we were facing an entirely new world. Our major enemy, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, had devolved an empire, a major empire with nuclear weapons had uh, fallen apart. And our major challenge was to try to figure out how to manage that change from the outside, because ultimately only the powers within can do something about it, and trying to make them less of a nuclear threat. And we were able, in fact, and I'm glad you're going to talk to Warren Christopher, because it's all part of kind of the same record. Um, of being able to dismantle uh, a lot of the Soviet uh, nuclear arsenal, worked to employ a lot of the Soviet scientists, ex-Soviet scientists, and then uh, work with the challenge that was left in terms of having a Europe that was whole and free and undivided. The first Bush administration had, in fact, accomplished something very difficult, which was the reunification of Germany. However, they had left the Balkan Peninsula disintegrating. And I think on President Clinton's watch and um, um, on mine, we have managed uh, to now have democratic elections everywhere in the Balkans. And ethnic cleansing has stopped. Um, war criminals have been indicted. Some of them have gone to The Hague. And uh, we are looking now at the last piece of the puzzle of a Europe whole and free has been put into place, and now it has to be cemented down. The other challenge we were left with was Iraq. Um, literally, um, the war had ended and he was still in place, and there were very um, stringent and appropriate Security Council resolutions in place that put sanctions into place. And we have been working very hard to keep those in place uh, and have succeeded, actually, with a lot of difficulty. But Saddam is still there, so we're kind of turning uh, that back over. We had a, a rumor just about a week or 10 days ago that he was dead, but apparently that was That not was important. not true. Um, the other thing that there's, there's so many issues that we were left with or wanted to face in the 21st century. Foreign policy is very different, and um, it is much more multidimensional. You have to deal with uh, your allies and, and uh, security threats, but also we put Africa on the map, so to speak. Um, President Clinton and I have been there. I've been there every year as either UN ambassador or secretary of state. The president's been there three times. Uh, we have cared about what happens in Africa and done things about HIV AIDS. We've talked about new foreign policy issues like drugs and uh, climate change and human rights. And, uh, and I think one of the most interesting initiatives that unfortunately we're leaving uh, is what can be done with changes in North Korea. 
again, um, things turn rather dramatic and have done so overnight with regard to one of the things you just mentioned, namely Africa, and more particularly the Congo. We had news of the assassination of Lauren Kabia, and uh, just today, and here is something from Paris Match, which I have on my yeah. screen, there is now confusion as to whether he has, in fact, been assassinated or whether he's flown out of the country. Do you have any intelligence on no, that? No, and we've been trying to check back all day. Um, it's a little unclear, um, although um, signs point to the fact that he is no longer alive. But it's very hard. Nobody can uh, corroborate that. Uh, we've spent a lot of time on Congo, which used to be Zaire under Mobutu, a very large uh, piece of Central Africa and uh, a very troubled country. Which seems no longer to exist, in fact. There are Ugandans and Rwandans and, all, and Angolans in there grabbing pieces of the country, aren't well, they? Well, the part of the problem had been is that they had, in one way or another, sent in forces. And I think one of the things that concerns us is that uh, whatever chaos might emerge, um, that there not be kind of a tribal wars of Hutus and Tutsis and uh, divisions. And it's a very complex country. But it's what needs to happen was that there was a peace process put into place, the Lusaka process. And Kabila never really wanted to abide by it. He wouldn't allow for there to be a national dialogue, which would have allowed some of the opposition parties to feel a part of a, what had been basically a, a highly authoritarian and corrupt regime under Mobutu. We are launched on what uh, you diplomats call a tour d'horizon. We <laughs> we've talked about a number of troubled parts of the world. Let me turn you to yet another with which you have, you've had much concern, and which as your regime, that is as the Clinton regime, leaves, still remains uh, very problematic, indeed seems in many ways to have deteriorated. I speak, of course, of the Middle East. Uh, by Saturday, when the new president is inaugurated, we will not have uh, an Israeli-Palestinian accord. I doubt we'll even have renewal of any kind of serious discussions. What are the prospects there? Well, there are discussions actually going on. but At lower levels? Uh, no. I mean, today, uh, the foreign minister and others are talking in Cairo. So I think that there are discussions. But I don't want to put out any false hope. This has been uh, a very difficult and tragic situation. Um, President Clinton has done what he has been asked from the region. I think there's been such a misunderstanding of people acting as if President Clinton has inserted himself into this when the contrary is true. And I can uh, testify to that because I'm on the phone all the time with either Arab leaders or uh, Europeans who say the United States needs to do something, that we have a unique uh, role. But ultimately what has to happen and what hasn't happened is the leaders themselves have to make the hard decisions. Uh, we have explored the subjects. The president put down uh, some very important ideas and parameters based on the most detailed work that I think any American president has ever done on this. Um, and it, But we can't make the decisions. But a critique that has been voiced more than uh, uh, once in recent, over the last year, by essentially conservative commentators on American foreign policy problems is that uh, the Clinton administration and you acting with it and for it uh, have pushed too hard, particularly have pushed too hard on Barack and his people to, uh, to offer uh, still further advantages to the Palestinian Authority, particularly on the question of the future of Jerusalem, and that this has not worked to pacify or to engage uh, Arafat and company uh, to negotiate in good faith, but rather has led them to 
the perception that he gets still more and more and more. They have upped the ante and they reactivated the Intifada as a way of um, backing their claims with threat. Well, first of all, I think that it's important to understand how we got to this point. The Oslo Accords had set up a process where there would be interim measures taken that uh, the con concept behind it was that the Arabs and the, I mean, Palestinians and the Israelis would learn to deal with each other on smaller issues and that that would serve as a lubricant for them to deal with the permanent status issues which do were always uh, listed as Jerusalem, the issue of the refugees, the territory and its borders and security. Those are the issues that if there's ever going to be a solution will have to be dealt with. There's no way to deal with it. What had happened was the process had basically been set up for Prime Minister Rabin but it was carried out by Prime Minister Netanyahu and what was supposed to be a lubricant turned out to be sandpaper and it really deteriorated so that there um, was no discussion um, and increased uh, violence generally and so and Prime Minister Barak was elected on a peace mandate he is the one that has been the driving force behind uh, the Israeli position um, and he has been the one that has uh, systematically uh, offered things. The reason that there is a commentary by the conservative community here is that there's disagreement even within Israel between mm. the conservative and the labor uh, approach to this. But what need, people need to know is this is not the president. This is coming from um, those in uh, Israel who believe that ultimately these two uh, peoples have to live side by side and some agreement has to be made. And I think that um, we did a service through Camp David because issues that had not been talked about are being talked about. And the truth is, paradoxically, that the closer you get towards resolving something, the enemies of peace come out. This is uh, the most complex issue in the world. It's gone on for decades and it has centuries of history. And ultimately, there will be a peace and it will be based on the ideas that we came up with. Are we possibly too engaged in the large world? Uh, you, you remember the uh, Kennan's book about uh, Critical of Wilson, in which he says that the Wilsonian ambition to somehow get into all the world and make it safe for democracy and spread democracy uh, can be extremely catastrophic in its unintended consequences, and that we might do better to uh, turn a touch Panglossian and cultivate our own national garden, uh, making commitments where necessary, but not investing in every in the solution of every crisis or every difficulty uh, that is to be discovered elsewhere in the world. There's a sense that maybe that is uh, the kind of view that the new administration is bringing into the White House and into the State Department. Uh, how much engagement is right? How much is too much? Well, first of all, I am going to spend the rest of my life uh, saying that there is a false choice, false dichotomy between saying that they're the Woodrow Wilsonian types and the hard-headed types. The only policy that is good for the United States, one that uh, secures our prosperity and makes American people secure, is one that represents our values. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we have to be everywhere. Nobody has advocated that. But it does mean that our national interest is not just based on certain mm -hmm. geographical choke points or 
whether oil comes from somewhere, but because the American people care if people are being hacked to death in some country, uh, or if people are starving, or if there are border disputes that could be handled through preventive diplomacy, conflict resolution, or ultimately by supporting peacekeeping operations. I think that what is happening in the 21st century, and if the new administration doesn't see it, it will be at America's peril, is that there has to be a choice between engaging full American force, as happened in the Persian Gulf, or doing nothing. We have a whole host of options uh, that are provided by peacekeeping operations, which we only have to support uh, financially, not um, through our own forces. And we don't have to be the global 911. But I do think that we have to understand that America's prosperity depends on stability in a huge number of countries because we're all over the place. Our people travel everywhere, they invest everywhere, and our territory itself is not threatened so much by military force but by drugs and um, global warming and a whole host HIV AIDS, a whole host of different issues. And yet something else. Tony Lake was here just about a month ago and as you know his new book points at many problems that we will face. And one of them, particularly, is terrorism reaching us, terrorism from outside reaching us. What do you, uh, are, are you as concerned about that as he seems to Absolutely. be? Absolutely. And I think we've all said that nuclear proliferation or proliferation of weapons of mass destruction combined with the fact that terrorism comes from states and non-state actors is something that we have to be concerned about. The question is, what creates terrorism? Can we stop it? How do we guard against it? But we can't guard against it by shutting down and, as you put it, being Panglossian. It doesn't work. Uh, our whole way of life depends on our being, on our facing outward, not inward. And so I think uh, while um, it's kind of, um, I mean, I've taught Kennan. I know Kennan. I think he, and I admire him greatly, but he's just wrong uh, for the 21st century. This is a very different world, and um, people need to understand the, the many dimensions of foreign policy and the fact that while we are the sole superpower now, we have to operate with partners, uh, our alliances have to be strong, and we have to try to see what affects America in a way um, that that is not just selfish, but what affects our psyche. I just uh, today did a program on trafficking uh, in women. Now, that comes, I mean, it's a terrible issue, but the bottom line is it, it destabilizes whole societies. And there's uh, um, manufacturing of uh, false identities and criminals and drugs, and um, all of those issues affect the in some way or another many Americans and I think what's important is that Americans need to understand that foreign policy is not foreign given the lack of borders and information these days um, there are many more issues that affect us but it doesn't have to be you know we're not everywhere we don't have to do everything ourselves but we do have to be involved and I and I am sure that when the next administration actually looks at the books at what the world looks like, uh, rather than speaking from the outside, uh, they will see many of the same issues we have. And I hope they will see the false dichotomy between what is known as Wilsonianism and what is hard-headed realism, because the most realistic policy for the U.S. is to 
pursue democracy and our values. as we end this brief but to me a fascinating conversation forgive a moment of lightheadedness what was the best state dinner you attended or the best meal you had while you were running around the world? well i have to say that the the best state dinner is hard to do because they're all great in one form or another and they have gotten kind of more democratic and larger recently and they're always fun and so i they're hard to comment on but i just had my best meal i think which was that the french foreign minister who's a very good friend uh... gave a going away dinner for me. I read me. about that, in fact. And uh, it was as good as it gets. Mm -hmm. uh, great party, I guess. Great. Well, it was a small party, but it was wonderful. And it wasn't just the food, but mm -hmm. uh, the relationships. And I and I think the hardest part about leaving uh, this position is that not just not being able to represent the United States anymore, because that is an unparalleled honor, especially for somebody who wasn't born here. But a lot of the personal relationships that develop with people that you work with so intimately. I mean, I spent more time on the phone with the foreign ministers of Europe uh, as we were dealing with Kosovo than I did with my own family. And we have gone through a lot of very difficult issues together. And, and I do think that while diplomacy is a statecraft, there are some personal aspects to it. You're staying in Washington, I gather. I am. Yes. To do what? I'm going to write a book because my life, and if you add my parents to it, really mm -hmm. does cover the 20th century. The Corbells. The Corbells, yeah. uh, who, uh, interestingly enough, my father was Condoleezza Rice's professor. I read that, yeah. Um, so, At uh, Denver, I believe. In Denver, University yeah. of Denver. In fact, he was responsible for her not being a music major, but mm -hmm. being um, in international relations. But I think that... Uh, I want to be able to continue to pursue my passion, which is democratization, and to deal with something that I think we need to do more carefully. We are very good now at giving technical advice in how to have elections. We've taught people to count votes better than we do. We are very good at celebrating democracy. But where we haven't quite sorted it out is what you do uh, in countries in what I call their post-euphoria phase, when people realize that uh, the democracy dividend doesn't come easily, uh, when institutions have to be changed, and it's more difficult work in terms of just kind of going out on the streets and celebrating. So I wanted to do that. I'm going to be chairman of the board of what I consider one of the great organizations, the National Democratic Institute, which actually grew out of an idea of President Reagan's. He created the Endowment for Democracy, and it has four institutes under it, a Democratic Institute, a Republican Institute, a Labor Institute, and a Business Institute. And what started as a fairly small operation is now worldwide, and I'm very honored to have been asked to come back to head it. And we are honored to have had you here, if only briefly, and I thank you very much for joining thank us Thank you. I'd be very glad to come back anytime.